in our spiritual work, there is a connection to something larger than us that is unseen, that is anchoring us. That's the same thing that we need to connect to when we're talking about our imagination. And when we talk about reimagining the world, there isn't that connection to something that is unseen to us. That's the possibility. Our inability to imagine is a part of the trauma that we've experienced. How deeply connected we are to this possibility that is unseen to us. How can we be similarly deeply connected to this other possibility of the world? Welcome to the Evolutionary Leadership Podcast. Here, I'm inviting you into a conversation. A conversation with remarkable leaders who are devoting their lives to the evolution of consciousness and culture. In today's episode, I get to interview Kendra Rosalie Hicks. She's the director of Radical Philanthropy at Resist. But here, we'll be talking to her and about her as the, the creative life force behind the estuary projects. A set of installations at the intersection of both art and ritual, at the juncture of remembering and dreaming. You'll notice that there's familiarity between me and Kendra. We've been in the same community for decades, literally. But more recently, she's been a participant in the Evolutionary Leadership Cohort of 2017, as well as our own graduate program this year, 2018. So you'll, you'll notice that our conversation is, is familiar. We'll, we'll often make reference to people that you don't know. And, and what we'll do then is we'll try to link to them in the show notes in case you want to find out about, about our amazing friends and the influence that they've had on this community that we're building. There are also a, a couple of points of reference that are worth lifting up. You'll notice... Kendra and I bring up the Sankofa bird, the African symbol that, that invites us to go back and to remember and to reclaim even as we move forward into the future. We, we talk about the work of the Kombahi River Collective, uh, and that was a group that was born here in Roxbury uh, during these apocalyptic times, the, the busing crisis, which was the big desegregation, school desegregation case here in Boston. And and these murders of, of 12 women of color over three months, which is what this estuary project phase is, is highlighting, is bringing our attention to, also give birth to this collective and to this idea of intersectionality, this idea that we are impacted by interlocking systems of power and of oppression and, and, and that we, we claim our wholeness in light of that. It's powerful work. And I encourage you to to learn more and, and to look further. There's a there's also a funny part in the in the podcast where it sounds like I want to rename my own podcast after that of Adrian and Adam Brown's uh, "How to Survive the End of the World," which is amazing. Both Kendra and I, uh, and I'm sure a couple of our listeners listen to it. And that's that's not what I want to do. I I am, however, asking the question, how do we live at the end of days? What does it mean to live at the end of days? I think that's what Adrian and Autumn are bringing up, and I think that's what Kendra's talking about here, too. It's, 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 a, it's about meeting this moment and, and figuring out what is wanting to be born now out of this ending. I encourage you to check out Kendra's Kickstarter campaign, the estuary projects to give and to share. Let people know about this because this is beautiful, prophetic, and liberating work. And now I'll let you meet Kendra. Kendra, I am so excited to be in conversation with you. Thank you for being at the Evolutionary Leadership Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here as well. Every interaction I've had with you, um, the way I see you show up in space... Uh, the what you bring, the power that you bring, and the vision that you bring, has uh, blown me away mm. for a long time. So I always knew that I wanted to interview you for this podcast. Mm. Thank you. That's a high compliment. And one of the one of the reasons why I want to interview you is this project that you're working on, mm. the estuary projects. Uh, sometimes I I think that if I had a different podcast, I would title it. How to survive at the end of days, right? Mm -hmm. It just feels like things are crazy. 
Yeah. I don't have to tell you about the news cycle. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel like the perspective that you bring about the possibility that is inherent in apocalyptic times mm. is, is something that people need to hear. So why don't you share a couple of words about, about this project that you're working on? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, think, I think what you said captured it really well. I think that we are in a moment of possibility. I think that right now, as things are falling apart around us, our initial reaction is to resist it and to fight the thing, um, whether it be politically in our movements. I think that there is a lot of going against it. Uh, I think one thing that I realized this weekend is that we are very conscious when people ask us what's going on in our communities about all of the things that are going wrong. Uh, and so having that orientation to the world, it doesn't surprise me that our orientation to finding solutions are how to fight the things that are happening instead of how do we look at all the beautiful things that are emerging in this moment and how do we work to cultivate those things. And so the Estuary Projects is really about helping us remember that we've been here before, that our ancestors have been in, in dire conditions, sometimes worse than what we're experiencing right now, and that they've created and built beautiful new ways of being that have propelled us forward. And so not only do I want folks to remember, like, oh, we've actually been here before, to shift our orientation to what's happening in the world, to reimagine, if everything collapsed tomorrow, what would be in its place? How would we be able to survive? Um, and really experimenting with all of those ways. Um, and I think that that's a, a framework that I've been blessed with, um, that you've given me, is about experimentation, right? It's like, how do we test the small ways that we want to be together, that we want to exist in the world? How do we say, you know, maybe we don't want to call the police in our neighborhood, and so what's the first thing that we can do? Maybe we can start having community potlucks on our street and we get to know people and then kind of go from there. Um, so it's really about remembering and activating like that imagination and really the audacity to like imagine that we can build something better um, and then experimenting our way there. That is so, so potent. The image that immediately comes to mind is the Sankofa bird, right? The, the kind of has to go back before going Moving forward. forward. It's my first tattoo. I have it on my shoulder. Oh, <laughs> that, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. It was, um, you know, I think somebody who's in our community, Iraq, um, when I was um, thinking about getting a tattoo, I remember asking him any advice about getting a tattoo. And he said, you know, think about what you want and wait for six months. And if you still want it, then go get it. Um, and it took two years after that for me to realize like I had different ideas and I would wait the six months and be like nah I don't want that um and this is the one that stuck that is beautiful yeah <laughs> you're gonna have to show it to me sometime yeah I will absolutely uh what are we remembering with this project hmm. what are we remembering I think that there's um some ancestral knowledge that we've been disconnected from because of everything that's happening um I think that spiritually there's a disconnection but also i think in our movement spaces there's a little bit of a disconnection to our history and to what's happened and to what we've been able to to create and build um and so for me it's really about remembering exactly what were the apocalyptic events in our history that created fertile ground for new ways of being um, particularly the estuary projects is meant to be something that happens on an ongoing basis but the first one is really here in, is here in Roxbury. And so in Roxbury um, in 1979, in, in the early 70s, really in the 70s, um, there were um, a string of murders that happened. Um, there were 12 women who were murdered in a 12-week span in Roxbury in 1979, um, along with a number of things that were happening. The busing was happening in Boston. And so the city was very much on fire. Um, but during that time was also the time of the Kambahi River Collective. And it's during the years that we got the Kambahi River Collective Statement. And so the first installation of the estuary projects is really to remember um, that there was an apocalypse here in our neighborhood and that the people in our community really got together, shifted the way that they were together and gave us something new. Mm. Um, you know, the Kambahi River Collective Statement is by by any stretch, really the foundations of Black feminist thinking and the the foundation, what gave us 
the analysis, like the beginning forms of intersectionality, right? Before we called it intersectionality. Um, and I don't think that enough of us know that that is not only homegrown, but that it came on the heels of um, loss and tragedy. Um, so yeah, so I really want us to remember that. Thank you. Uh, thank you for bringing it back to that very sobering time. Uh, it blows my mind that I did not know about this death until you told me about him. Mm -hmm. uh, that in these times when thankfully there's this focus on the plight of women in our mm -hmm. culture, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, you can point to this to murders and, and to this violence and you can somehow see possibility emerge out of that. Could you share a, a little bit more about what do we know what do we know about these murders? Sure. Um, unfortunately, because of the times um, and because they were black women, we don't know a lot. Um, the way that the stories were covered, Uh, in my research, some women have different names in different neighborhoods, different d dates of their death. Like the information is very, um, I would say just not, a, we just don't have a lot of it. Mm -hmm. We don't have a lot of information. We do know all of their names. Uh, we know all the names of the women. We know um, where their bodies were found. We know that it wasn't a serial killer, that they were all individual acts by Uh, different people. We know that all of the women were murdered by men. Mm. Um, yeah, and we know that they were, you know, within the confines of Roxbury, um, and some of which is now Dorchester. I think that our our neighborhood limits have shifted a little bit, and so some of some of what used to be called Roxbury isn't called Roxbury now anymore. Um, and we know that they were all killed within three months, and so um, sometimes two in a week, uh, and sometimes one every week. Wow. Yeah. So 12 black women here in Boston during the Boston crisis, mm -hmm. three months, mm -hmm. all murdered by men. Yes. And make the link between that and the work of the Kambahi Women's Collective. Yeah. Um, so I think <clears throat> that the analysis of the Kambahi River Collective is that the systems of oppression and like the, 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 the systemic oppression that we're experiencing in our communities was making way for the ability for like black women to be murdered. Uh, and so the Kambahi River Collective is a collective of black queer women that came out of the black power movement and out of the first wave feminist movement. And so a lot of their analysis was that they couldn't separate their black identity from their queer identity or their poor identity, that all of that they were experiencing a specific kind of oppression because they were black women and because they were queer. And so their analysis around the murders was that the fact that these women were black and that they were women and that they were experiencing oppression in such a specific way is what was allowing for the violence against them to kind of flourish. It's because black women were... Um, from from there at the bottom of the totem pole, from like their um, division, or I would say me farther out in the margins, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so their entire analysis is that that was what was allowing these women to be murdered, is that systemic oppression was making way for people to feel okay and for Black women to feel like they were just, for people to feel that Black women were disposable. Wow. Well, I, I really appreciate how you connect this to the current moment and the discourse on intersectionality it does it does feel and seem like these ideas caught on and that mm -hmm. it is a centerpiece of the discourse of mm -hmm. liberatory movements that that we need to look at at the most impacted and at the intersection of of this forms of oppression if mm -hmm. you will mm -hmm. I want to ask a little bit about you and how you got here but mm -hmm. I, I think it's helpful If you tell us what the Kambahi River is, what what was that collective named after? Yeah, so the Kambahi River is a river in South Carolina, and the Kambahi River Collective is named after the Battle of the Kambahi River, which was led by Harriet Tubman. Um, and so Harriet Tubman led that battle, and that battle resulted in the freeing of about 800 slaves. And so the Kambahi River Collective is named after um, the battle that was led by Harriet Tubman in the Kambahi River. Wow. Mm -hmm. And your vision for the S-Story projects 
is to memorialize these murders with how? Um, so my vision for the projects in general is to memorialize endings. Um, and so this first one is to memorialize these murders um, and to highlight the conditions of that apocalypse. Uh, and so for the one in Roxbury is to use installations um, at each of the locations where these women were found to memorialize that place, right? To like bring that remembering aspect of it. I want us to use art and to use these installations as a way to engage with that location in a different way. I think all of these locations are places that people just walk past every day. Um, and I worked with Luana Morales um, at the beginning of the year to put up altars at each of these places. And we were realizing how people were engaging with us. People wanted to know what was happening. They wanted to know what happened here and that people were um, taken aback and filled with emotion, right? When they were finding out that this place that they were walking past every day was like the scene of a murder. Um, and people were also happy that mm. people were remembering. Oh, I had no idea. Like, you know, people 40 years ago, people, you know, forget about that. Um, and so it's it's really about using the art installations as the point of engagement and the point of remembrance, the thing that's going to bring us and say, oh, wow, this happened here. How similar is this to what's happening now? Right. I think that we're in a moment where we're like, woe is me. Right? What are we going to do? Everything is so like so big. And how are we going to tackle all of these things? Um and I want to use the installations to say, like, no, we've actually been here before. Our ancestors have been here before and they saw a way through. And so, like, how are we going to use that ancestral memory, right? Like, cultivating that audacity, like I mentioned earlier. It's like, well, there, there's some, some uh that we have to have yeah. <laughs> that our ancestors had, right? To kind of push it. And that we're going to have to cultivate that same audacity um, to imagine a new world. Um, but we have to remember first. That's so powerful. Uh because you earlier mentioned E-Rock and tattoos, and one of his tattoos says, we were never meant to survive, right? Oh, yeah, Actually. And it feels like that's that's what you're pointing to, that we have this, the only way we would have gotten here mm -hmm. is through the power of that, that ancestral determination. Yes. You've heard me talk in the past about, you know, I often quote Professor John Powell mm -hmm. and the idea of the European Enlightenment project of the isolated self, right? <laughs> yes. This, uh, this hyper-individualism, mm -hmm. which not only detaches us from each other here and now, but it kind of pretends like we spurred out of nowhere, mm -hmm. right? We don't, we, mm -hmm. we're not, we're not connected to, to the past. And I've often wondered if we wouldn't be better stewards of the future, right? Mm -hmm. If we wouldn't be better to our descendants yes right rather than stealing from them mm -hmm. right absolutely uh, if we paid more attention yeah uh, to the past so that's a little bit of what i'm getting mm -hmm. from what you're sharing here yeah but how did you end up here i mean I, i'm gonna assume that you were not kind of born into this consciousness right like tell me a little bit about unfortunately no <laughs> but, but you, you're from boston mm -hmm. right so, so tell me a little bit about your story Yeah, so I, I'm from Boston. I'm first generation. I come from a family of, of immigrants. Um, my my mother came in the late 80s here from, from the Dominican Republic and then subsequently brought my dad and all of my siblings. Uh, but I was born in the Bronx. Uh, when I was very young, my mother brought me back to the Dominican Republic, and so I grew up there. And so my experience in the United States is very much the immigrant experience. I came here when I was 13, didn't speak English, you know, had to go to to a bilingual school, but that's, I grew up in Roxbury. And so my experience um, is my, I guess what moved me to begin in Roxbury is because it was my my neighborhood, right? Like kind of like hometown. There was a, a deep connection to the places that I spent in my whole childhood. Um, but how did I end up here? Huh. I've been uh, an artist. What kind of art? Um, mostly mixed media. Um, I started painting murals 
and then started doing graffiti when I was around maybe 14, 15. And so I was, an, I, I, I did I did do art, but I, I've also been in the movement for a really long time. I, I've, I always tell people that the movement raised me. Mm-hmm. Um, I came into like my consciousness and my analysis really, really early, maybe around 13, 14. Um, and so I spent most of my life uh, doing organizing work and being in the movement. But I knew um, that there was more to what we were doing um, and that there was a gap to what we were doing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I think that we have in the movement, we have a, a trajectory of um, you develop an analysis. You kind of have like that eye-opening experience. You get politicized and then we teach you how to organize and how to run a campaign and you fight the thing. Yes, I'm familiar with the pattern, <laughs> of course. Um, and so there were gaps in our movement, right? Like there, there were people who are supposed to be our healers and that were, we had like screaming at walls or at protests when they should have been kind of like developing that muscle. And there were people who are our artists who should have been helping us kind of like think about building to reimagine, right? And, and they could have been building that muscle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that our orientation was just towards one towards one way and now in the past few years we've been you know you can see it kind of opening very much widely um into that but what really brought me into this is that i've always been um a reimaginer you know Mm -hmm. i've always been a reimaginer um we were organizing and doing campaigns and i was always like yeah but so like let's do it ourselves you know um i'm a a co-founder of a youth organization called beantown society that's here in jp as well in eggleston square um, and for a really long time, we were a part of this campaign. It was like the youth jobs campaign. And we spent like years organizing to like get, get more youth jobs, get more funding naturally. Right. Because the data was showing that if we had more funding, like when we have more programming, violence goes down. And when this is there, like it was very obvious to us. Um, but then it got to a point where we were so tired of like asking and not getting that we were like, you know, what, we're just going to do it ourselves. Um, and that's what we did. We like <laughs> started experimenting, working with younger people in middle schools. Um, and that's when it became really obvious to me that I was like, oh, we're, we're going to have to to do multiple. Everybody can't do the same thing. Mm-hmm. We all have to do different things at the same time and in connection I um, love with that. one another. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I think that for me, I'm like, oh, so where do I locate myself? Right. Like the movement has a lot of different moving pieces where I like myself and this is where I locate myself. Um, And in the past few years, I've been stepping into that more. Mm, It's beautiful. It's interesting. Um, Your last the comment kind of makes your point is things are getting really crazy Mm -hmm. and immediately more possibility opens up. Right. People people kind of finally see, well, wait a minute, we Mm -hmm. can't just kind of hold on to the same idea. Mm -hmm. Now, but I'm curious as to how you came into the movement. I know it brought you up, right? Mm-hmm. You were a first generation migrant in, I'm assuming, a working or poor family here <laughs> in Boston. Yeah. And what happened? Like, how did you get turned on to, to the possibility of freedom, if you will? Ah, uh, um, well, let's see. A couple of things. <laughs> one was, you know, I think the first one, and I and I always um, credit uh, someone who's our friend Mana Thakur um, mm-hmm. into this, is that um, I was the, a young person who was gang involved at a very young age. Um, and when I went, when I met Manav, Manav gifted me a book called uh, "Can't Stop, Won't Stop: The History of the Hip Hop Generation." And I always credit that book with being like the thing that started my. Um, political analysis because it showed me that there were reasons for the conditions in my neighborhood. I was like a kid that grew up with hip hop. It was like all that I listened to, but I never kind of connected it to what was happening, like the conditions in our neighborhood. Um, And reading about the Bronx burning, right? Like that systemic burning of the Bronx was like the first time that I noticed. I was like, oh, actually, um, there's a design. Like we're in these conditions by design. And so that was the first thing that kind of like sparked me. And then I just, I started inhaling books. Um, I read Pedagogy of the Oppressed when I was 16. Um, And I, you know, and I just started getting politicized and really learning more. 
Um, and I was doing community organizing. I actually met Manav at the High Square Task Force. And so I was a youth community organizer there. And so I was, it's a high school program. I was the only one in eighth grade <laughs> when I was there at the program. And we were doing a lot of um, organizing work. And so I started doing organizing really in like traditional nonprofits um, and through mentors and a lot of reading, um, I became really radicalized and started doing my own thing. <laughs> Beautiful. And have there been big turning points in that trajectory? And I'll tell you what I'm thinking about here. I just, mm -hmm. I just thinking about my own process of, of kind of waking up, uh, mm -hmm. and then kind of getting on a path and being like, well, wait a minute, this, this feels a bit rigid there there must be some another another path like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what has that looked like for you yeah i think that there were two turning points um my first turning point was when i became a street worker um and a street worker is somebody who works with young people who are gang involved doing like direct intervention work and so that was a turning point for me because it was the first time that i realized that i was in a movement that wasn't including the people i was like You know, the people who are like me or like how I was or the people like in my neighborhood, you know, if I asked them about campaigns or organizations or like stuff that were going on, you know, Ms. Johnson, who lived around the corner from me, didn't know what I was talking about. Um, and so when I became a street worker, it became really obvious to me. I was like, oh, um, we're really forgetting those of us who are like the most marginalized. And it's when I realized that it was, um, I guess, some dogma there, right, that people who maybe didn't think like us or maybe have our analysis necessarily weren't involved in the stuff that I was doing. Um, and then the second part was when, so those two noticings, that was the first noticing. I was like, okay, we're, we're actually, by functioning in this way, we're leaving some people behind. That was the first one. And then the second turning point in that trajectory was when I started practicing Capoeira Angola. And that was, in a, that was a huge part in my own like spiritual awakening. And that's in that turning point is when I realized I was like, oh, the first one was by doing things this way, we're leaving people behind. And then the second one was, oh, we can't keep doing things this way. We're leaving ourselves behind. Right. Like there was a um, a spiritual component of our work mm. that was missing there. Um, and I think that that kind of rounded up my orientation. Right. It was like we have to resist. We have to build our resilience. We have to reimagine. And we all, and we also have to build like a new world. And like, how do we do that? Um, and so it kind of rounded off my analysis in those ways. That's so powerful. I, I want to hear more about the spiritual uh, experience of capoeira. I don't know if you know, but I I spent about six months in Brazil. Mm. And the bulk of that time I was connected to a capoeira group mm. trying to do democracy work Wow! It, it, over there, um, which was really, really powerful. Mm -hmm. So it's another thing that's close to my heart here. Yeah. Tell me about tell me about the the connection between this this Afro Brazilian martial art and mm. and and spirit. Yeah, and so with capoeira, um, with capoeira Angola, it was really hmm, it was created. I'm, I'm I'm saying this out loud, and now it's like coming to me. I'm like, wow, this whole thing is informing how I'm <laughs> this project. Right? Is that they were creating maroon societies. Right. They were people who didn't agree with the way that things were happening, slaves that were freed, other people who were like supporting them. And they created these communities and they were using capoeira very much to liberate themselves from slavery. They were hiding messages in the music. They were practicing um, the martial art as a dance to hide the martial art from the people. And so there was there's something there um, that is now living in my project about creating the world that you want to see, mm -hmm. right? Like in in the midst of that pain and those apocalyptic conditions, right? That slavery was and was one of those moments for us. Um, we're building something new. It's like fertile ground to like build something. Um, and so a lot of the capoeira practice is um, anchored in the Yoruba practice with a lot of the songs um, being a part of that. And so I think that looking at capoeira as a spiritual practice, as a way to move like myself towards liberation and like my people towards liberation was really about how we are with each other and less about, you know, what we would consider to be um, spirituality 
It was about creating a community and like using that as a microcosm of how we wanted to be with each other. Yep. Powerful. No, I I want to keep I want to keep digging at this because the more I hear you speak, the more um, radical it feels to to think about the very conditions of our oppression as containing the seeds of liberation, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And about that having something to do with what we're calling spiritual. Mm. So like, two different thoughts came to mind. Mm -hmm. One was, I was uh, talking to a friend recently about the work of Margaret Wheatley, who's been a great influence in my thinking over the years. And she's got this really powerful book that came out a few years back called Who Do We Choose to Be? Mm. And in it, what she talks about is the fact that collapse is inevitable, mm -hmm. that it's a pattern of civilization and that we are in it. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, who do we choose to be? But one thing she talks about is how the seed of the destruction of the thing is within the thing. And she uses Silicon Valley as like the promise of utopia while working people can no longer live in San Francisco, right? Mm -hmm. Where homelessness explodes Well. So what you're saying almost seems like a, like the corollary or the opposite of that. You're like, mm -hmm. in the apocalyptic conditions, we also find um, the possibility for liberation. But there is mm -hmm. something that you keep pointing to, which, is, which has to do with the ancestral, which has to do with the spirit. And mm -hmm. you talked about it in Capoeira. What else can you say about that spiritual form? Hmm. Say more. So I know that we've, in other conversations we've had, we've talked about both of our experiences with the Christian faith mm -hmm. and with that revivalist tradition mm -hmm. of the faith and, and this, the fire of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. And as you were talking, I was wondering how about whether some of our ancestors managed to do this work and survive through it mm -hmm. because they had a spiritual framework that saw mm -hmm, resurrection mm -hmm. yes. uh, and redemption mm -hmm. out of suffering and death. Yes. It, it, and then just drawing a connection between what mm -hmm, you, the mm -hmm, Astralis mm -hmm. project and, yes. and what you're mm -hmm. talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, thank you. Thank you for, for bringing that up. But yes, I, I think, um, you know, in, in a lot of our conversations, we're like, oh, what are the what are the things that can we, we can pull from from that practice? And I think that in all of my spiritual practice, I think that that's what it is, is that there is a, a connection to something larger than us that is unseen that I think is it's I think that that's the same thing that we need to connect to when we're talking about our imagination. Right. I think that there's. In, in our spiritual work, whether it be Christianity, whether through capoeira, there is a connection to something that is unseen to us, that is a, that spirit, right, that is anchoring us. And when we talk about reimagining the world, there isn't that connection to something that is unseen to us, that could be, that is, that's the possibility. Um, and so what comes up for me is how do we, you know, and, and Adrian Marie Brown says that, like, our inability to imagine is a part of the trauma that we've experienced. Um, And so I think that this project is really a lot about how do we get that back? Um, I think that we can, we get a taste of it in our spiritual practice of being like, look how, how deeply connected we are to this thing, this possibility that is unseen to us. How can we be similarly deeply connected to this other possibility of the world um, and building that here with us? So Powerful. I can, I, I can feel that in you, which mm. is different from hearing it. There's... You, 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 you are evidently grounded in that space. What do you do now to, to keep your spirit attuned? Mm, what do I do now? Not enough. <laughs> As all, all people, I feel like all people, I'm like people who are like spiritual orientation. It's like, oh, I could be doing more. I could be doing more. Um, that's like, that's like the, ca the, the, the capitalist overlay on spiritual practice, exactly. right? Like, how can I produce can more of myself more spiritually? Spiritual. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, somebody, t I don't remember who it was that said this to me the other day. I was like, you know, uh, I have, I have a very, um, unique orientation to discipline. Um, I think that 
we we look at discipline a lot kind of like in this capitalistic lens of like we need to be disciplined so that we can produce more mm-hmm. uh, and my orientation to it and i mention it a lot and i talk to a lot of people i'm like no we're gonna have to be disciplined to get through this like our ancestors were disciplined and i was like my orientation towards discipline is um how are we going to be disciplined so that we can create the world that we want to see mm. not in um not not to feed into capitalism right, right? like yeah. not so i have a a unique orientation to that i appreciate that a lot and so typically that's also it comes up in my spiritual practice of being like like discipline is important mm-hmm. um and not because i want to produce more of it but i'm just like there's there's a rigor that this work is going to require of us oh, right sure. like the world is ending <laughs> we're good there's going to be some discipline and some rigor that this work is going to require of us and I see my spiritual practice as being like a microcosm of that, of mm. like, this is where I can practice that rigor and where I can practice that discipline. Um, and so, yeah, it feels like not enough, but I do, I have um, a heavy meditation practice, which I think is really the strongest for me right now um, of kind of like how I hold that. Um, I think a lot of the work and the time that I spend with the my evolutionary leadership family uh, and some of the work that I'm able to do with you is really kind of like what keeps me in that orientation. And I guess you, my, my Christian background, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I think that there are a lot of elements to that work and how I um, engage with spirit that help keep me um, believing in the possibility, right? That's wonderful. There's something else. Thank you again for that. And... So we, we are talking about movement. We're talking about imagination. We are talking about remembering. Mm. We're talking about spirit. We're also talking about art. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned, you said you're an artist. This In this first take on the Estuary Projects is it's the art installations mm-hmm. um, that are connected to altars. So it's, 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 it's sacred art, it seems like. Mm. Yeah. Um, Tell me about the role of art, the role of culture in, in this work that we're trying to do. Um, I think that art, for me at least, and in, in this in, like in this iteration of my thinking, if you ask me three months from now, maybe I'll think mm-hmm. <laughs> about it differently. But I think it changes how people engage with us. I think that the threshold for in, like for engaging people who are outside of our own bubbles is like very, very high. And I think that art meets people where they are. Um, and so I think that for me, it's about expanding beyond us. I think that I talk about this project as being like, oh, how do we get the movement, like people in the movement away from just resisting and like shift some of us, right? The people who are interested in doing that, because I think that there is some need for that as well, um, because our people have to survive until we get to (laughs) where we're going. Um, but how do we get like the people who's who have that in them and who want to cultivate that here into the space. And so I talk about a lot of it as like from the movement, how do we get us thinking about it differently? And I'm like, oh, actually, no. How do we get all of us to do that? And typically people who are not like in our spaces, the the threshold for engaging those people is like very high. And I think that art neutralizes that. Um, I think that an installation in your neighborhood neutralizes that. And so for me, that's really the role that it plays, that it's it shakes people. Right. It call it calls your eye to it, even if you don't know what it is. Um, and so it's the curiosity. Uh, you know, Lawrence and I had a conversation um, and we were looking at the the visual, like the logo that I'm using for it. And he was like, well, you know, a lot of people might not know what this is. And I'm like, oh, that's the point. Because what happens when you don't know is that it ignites that curiosity. Right. I want people to look deeper. I want people to ask more questions because that's where the magic is going to happen. That's where the engagement is going to happen. So I think that that art is like really serving that purpose. Mm. That's awesome. I, I want to, I'll, I'll share a couple of thoughts that I think connect. But uh, my brother recently sent me this fonts. Uh, and the fonts are supposed to be the best for learning mm-hmm. because the letters are actually not complete. Mm. So you have to kind of engage more deeply and you end up remembering more because the letters are not what you used to kind of breezing Mm -hmm. through. So I I just find that interesting. I am, as you know, I just came back from Burning Man. I didn't just come back, but I went to Burning Man for the first time this year. Okay, let me be clear. You couldn't get more opposite than what we're talking about and, and burning uh-huh, yeah yeah <laughs> in so many ways and on so many levels but there was something about the art there mm. uh, all of which you could touch 
you could jump onto, you could mm. grab. Okay. Um, and it was also in this completely impossible space. There was these gigantic art installations in the middle of the desert, right? And it was, it was, I could see myself in the shoes of my seven-year-old kid, right? Mm. Like, in terms of like the physical engagement with the art object. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just, I'm just really intrigued by the possibility of what you're talking about mm -hmm. and it being in place where people walk through mm -hmm. and walk by and, and how it memorializes things. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that that's the, the most exciting part for me is thinking about how to get people to engage with them. Um, how, how to have it not be something, you know, these are, there are 12 different installations. Some of them are well over, you know, like we're talking seven, eight feet tall things that people are going to be like, what's this thing, right? Um, either stopping me from my, <laughs> my morning commute in the middle of the street. And so I think that that's really um, one of the most exciting things because now I'm thinking about like, oh, how are people going to engage with this, right? When the questions ultimately arise, how are we going to answer them? How are we going to meet the moment? Wow. Yeah. Tell me something about how you're going to make this happen. Because I, you know, you are inspired. You see this possibility. How do you, how do you take it from vision to fruition? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> first things first, um, a lot of sketching. I've been doing a lot of sketching of the visuals um, and what the installations are going to look like. I think the first thing is that we want to get the project funded. Um, and I say we because actually the first step was to get a team together. <laughs> um, and so for me, uh, naturally, right, we're talking about this project and about the collective imagination. Um, I don't see this as something that belongs to me. I see this as something that's collective. And so I really wanted to bring people with me who I know could support me in making it happen. Um, I don't believe that I'm like some soul, like genius who, who has this idea and now is going to bring this to, to fruition. I do think that this is something that is coming through me and then it wants to be brought into the world. And so I'm, I'm looking for, um, well, I found people in my community who are willing to help me do that. And so there's going to be a Kickstarter that's going to go live soon. Um, or maybe by the time that this goes out, it'll already be out, depending on the timeline, um, to get the project funded. And then we have a phase one, two, and three of like building these out, buying materials. I have a lot of people who are volunteering to help me put things together, some space to start building them. And we're just going to kind of be working. And the first installation is scheduled to go um, live on January 29th, which is the anniversary of, is the first anniversary of the murders. This coming January 29th? This coming January 29th. You are not kidding. This is happening. <laughs> yeah. So it's the 40th the 40th anniversary. Wow. Um, this coming January. And so that's why we decided to do it. So, yeah. Now, I, I want to go back for a second uh, to just one little bit of what you said. Mm -hmm. And I think holds so much. And I want to explore it if we're able. Something that is coming through you. Mm. I'm, I am a passionate believer in that. In the fact that that's how, to, interestingly, we are most aligned with ourselves when mm -hmm. we get out of the way for whatever. Yep. So it's, how, how do you experience this something coming through you? How, how do you know? Mm. Um, so this is, this is a funny story. This is last year um, around this time. I was listening to... First, last year around this time, I was very much struggling with the fact that I wasn't doing any art. I haven't been making art in years. I haven't made any art in many, many years. Um, and I have a two and a half year old now. And so I was definitely not making any art. And um, I was in a lot of conversation with myself about my creativity um, or my lack of creativity. I was like, oh, maybe I'm not a creative person. Maybe I was just, you know. Um, and so I was struggling with that a lot. And I remember I was listening to a podcast um, by, with Adrian and Autumn, and they were talking about their creative process in the podcast, and it was it was titled "Let the Ancestors Speak." Wow! <laughs> right. Wow. First, um, and there was a piece where they were talking about the creative process, and they talked about like they talked about the notion of letting this thing be birthed. Like, oh, this is not these are not like my ideas; these are things that like come through me, uh, and that shifted my entire orientation to like my creativity. I was like, oh no, this is not about like me having this like 
moment of enlightenment when like this creative idea was going to pop into my head and then I was going to like close off into a room and make it happen. Um, it was, it was a practice. Right. And so when I got more into, um, my meditation, when I got more into like my practice and when I, you know, similarly to what you said, got out of my own way, um, Gibran, I, I started having dreams. I had dreams about the installations what they needed to look like, what this needed to happen. I would wake up in the morning and if I pull out my phone right now, there's like a notes on my iPhone. And every time that I would have like a dream about what it would look like, I would wake up in the morning and I would get on my phone and I would write it in my notes. And so I have all of the installations written down on like what they were supposed to look like from dreams that I was like having about like what these things needed to look like. Um, and you know, that was those, those things happened <laughs> months apart, but, um, it was really about being open to it. It's, I think that we, we look at like our creativity as being something that like comes from us and mm -hmm. ideas that like we have, uh, and that that's not, that that's not always true. And that that's not, that's not how I wanted to use my talent. Like I didn't want to use that in the service of like my own personal individual visions. Um, and then when I let it come, it came. Wow. Yeah. I, I am I'm I'm really really moved by by the magic and the potency of, of what you're saying, and I'm trying to imagine a listener that might be well that's that's Kendra you know like she was touched by the spirit <laughs> like, uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> how does how should someone listening think about making themselves available about opening up to this mm. to this ancestral forces that that want to teach us that want to show us ways that's a hard question i don't know that i have the answer to that i think that's something i'm still trying to figure out myself um to continue to i think my hmm, my best advice is to find the small taste of it mm. in all of the places um like I said, it's like a practice. I think that's what I learned. It was like creativity is not a thing. It's a it's a practice. It's in all of the small moments when you're doing things that get thrown out and that don't happen. It's in all the moments when you're in community with people. Like a lot of my um a lot of my ideas come to me when I'm in community. It's a conversation, lunch that I'm having with like three people and somebody says something that like pops in my head and it ignites and it just goes somewhere else. And so it's really about being with people. I think that we we position artists as being this like lone, you know, head down, um, creating and making things happen. And I think it's really about being together with people. Um, and that's how you get out of your way. That's really beautiful. Yeah. It's uh, that this continued emphasis on on the we space is mm -hmm. one of the reasons why I wanted to make sure you and I chatted sooner than later. <laughs> and and I think there's there's like a, a balance to negotiate, if you will. Like, um, and I, I, I'm gonna make an assertion, and you tell me if yeah. this is how you see it Please. or not. But I often observe that we get so we have this interpretation of democratic and inclusive, mm -hmm. right? Where every voice has to be the same or mm -hmm. uh, I often see it in facilitation it's like you want to include more and more and more and more and more but but then choices don't get made right mm -hmm. and, and, and and steps don't get taken forward because it's like ever open mm -hmm. so I'm just wondering if there's a tension and how you work with it between you as the kind of vision mm -hmm. of this of this the, the holder of this vision, of this yeah. creative vision, and this team of people that you have, how do you dance between that which is definitely being moved through you that wants to be put out there and, and, and what these other folks start to see uh, and, and, and want? How do you how do you work with that? Yeah, I, I think that the key is that you are ultimately letting people inspire you. Um, I don't think that being in community and listening and doing things collectively um, in this in this space and, and and how I'm thinking about my project necessarily means that we're all going to do like we're going to do what everybody says. It's really about having conversations that inspire the direction of where it's going to go. Um, there is a tension, right? There's like a balance um, of something. How do I honor what's being given to me? 
there's something that there's there's something that's being given to me through my dreams and my spirit that needs to happen. So I need to honor the thing that's being given to me. Um, and I want the collective to inspire that vision. Mm. Um, and sometimes that might look like, oh, yeah, this is actually a thing. We should do this. And sometimes it might look like, ah, oh, I like that. And you know what's coming up for me that this needs to happen like that. Um, and I'm OK with that. And I think that the group of people who I'm working with have similar orientation to like being that support. Thank you. And I, I think that that kind of nuance is so important, mm -hmm. particularly when it comes to toward the artistic and creative. Yeah. Right. I have to say, and, and it's a non sequitur of sorts, but as you were speaking, just not throughout, but as you were speaking now, I, I just had a, a powerful sense of the ancestral energies mm -hmm. um, that are here and with us right now. It's almost like I can start to see a line of them behind you and that somehow makes me aware mm -hmm. of the line of them behind me and the first thing i want to do is honor you for listening to that uh, i'm curious to hear anything else you can share about your interaction with those voices and i appreciate the dreams um, i appreciate the capoeira which is so embodied mm -hmm. i just feel like all of our all original peoples, like the first religion mm -hmm. or spirituality was honor your ancestors and con communicate with nature, mm -hmm. right? Before all the dogmatic religions <laughs> followed later, right? It was like, and I, I, I think I said this before, even in this conversation, there's a, we are among the first generations in history to literally steal from the future. Mm -hmm. We are stealing from our descendants, yep. right? It's, it's counter-revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And I think it has to do with not seeing ourselves in time, not seeing ourselves as part of a lineage. And, mm -hmm. and so part of what I'm trying to get at here when I see you, when I talk to you, I see somebody who has this, this trust in the ancestral lineage that you're holding that is moving through you and i'm just wondering what can we what can we share with others about how to tap that how to be with these guides and friends and inspirations mm. wow um the th what was coming up for me as you were speaking i was thinking about my grandmother um, who is, um, I come from a, 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 Sante, a background of Santeria in my family. My grandmother was one. Um, my mother on, was, was the first person in my family who was not practicing that. Um, but I, I, as you were speaking, I was like, oh, I primed for this <laughs> in that practice, right? To growing up, growing up, um, with that spiritual practice in my family and in my grandmother's house and in my household, that there was some priming that happened for that that I think allows me to be more open to receiving it. Um, tapping into it. Tapping into it. Hmm. I think what keeps coming up for me is a conversation that um, I had with Lawrence when we were at EO. I have a lot of conversations. Lawrence and I talk a lot. <laughs> That's great. Uh, lots of inspirational talk. And um, it's a, we were talking about a story that you told at, at the EL graduate workshop where you were saying that one of the, one of the functions of God was to, um, have us forget so that we could remember. Yes. yes. <laughs> right. And so, so that we could like have us forget that we were, um, God, I'm not sure if that's the word that you used so that we could remember that we were, um, and we were just finishing that session and Lawrence and I walked outside and we were washing the dishes and Lawrence is like, wow. And I'm just like, I know, like what? And, and you know, and he was like, how do you remember? Like Lawrence and I were washing the dishes casually. We were like, how do you remember? How, like we felt that memory in that moment. And we were like, how do we not forget again? Mm. Um, and we were just like, Gibran seems to remember all of the time. <laughs> <laughs> and Lawrence goes, well, yeah, well, he's always in it. And then we kind of looked at each other and we were like, Oh, is that it? You just have to always be in it, right? It's like you don't, you don't forget, right? It's like, it's like being there. And so it just brings me back mm. to this being a practice. Mm -hmm. It's not something 
that happens, Mm -hmm. right? It's like just always being in a constant practice. How are you spending time with your ancestors? How are you speaking to them? How are you invoking them in your daily life? And it's really looking for like, where are all of the small places where we can continue to engage with that memory? Um, and like being open to it, like you can, you can only be there if you're like in it all of the time. And so kind of like opening up to that. That's so beautiful. That is so beautiful. Thank you for, thank you for naming it that way. I I do feel compelled to share two things with you. One is (laughs) just this morning before our meeting, I was talking to Seth Mm -hmm. and Listeners, forgive us for using all these all these names. names. We'll, we'll actually link them, link to them in the show notes. <laughs> we'll tag them. <laughs> but Seth, I, I was just having a conversation. He asked me, "How are you doing?" I'm like, I, "I'm just feeling really blessed right now." Mm. And I was saying, you know, what I can't believe is that I forget. Mm. <laughs> right? I'm like, how many times do you have wow. to see the face of God? Uh, and to keep forgetting, and and I think it's it's healthier to to see it as display, as some some inten- some intentional forgetting, so that mm-hmm. so that we can have the the grace of remembering. And I think that's the other thing I wanted to share. It's in this particular tradition, the tantric tradition, we talk about God having uh, the five functions: creation, sustenance, mm-hmm. destruction, self concealment, mm-hmm. which is hiding. Uh, only for the purpose of remembering. Yep. But the remembering happens through the flow of grace. Mm. And uh, and as we were talking about earlier, before before the, the podcast began, this this couple of days during which we're talking, we, we are celebrating... We're just celebrating the life of a saint who, who helped people remember, mm-hmm. right? And, 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 and that's so much of... I think that these are installations, mm. right? These are it's part of the flow of grace. This Kambahi Women's Collective in the middle of this apocalypse, helping mm. you to remember. Mm. I, 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 I'm not trying to flatter you when I say it. You walk in the world in a way that mm. that invites remembering, and I think that's that's a key reason why I wanted to make sure I got your voice mm. on this podcast. I'm so grateful for. For the passion and the heart that you bring into this. Thank you. That's a high compliment coming from you. Thank you very much. And I receive it. Thank you. Is there, I'm going to ask you two more questions, um, neither of which you have to answer. You don't have to answer any questions. Then I, if you guys know Kendra, <laughs> she won't. Uh, but um, is there anything that you would want our listeners to to hold as they contemplate? the estuary projects huh anything that i would want them to hold um i'm really excited to have people dream Mm -hmm. um i think that the remembering part is the first part right it's the art installations it's the engaging with that memory but the second part of the project is the experimentation and so there is going to be a call for some collective experimentation um, for us in Roxbury, for people in Boston, of testing out what our dreams, right? Like, how do we want the world to live? If we are remembering the work of our ancestors, what are our descendants going to remember from us, right? Like, what are we going to leave? Um, and so I think I, that's what I want people to hold, because there will be that invitation, right? Um, so, yeah. Thank you. Dream. Mm-hmm. I like it. Um, and then the last question I have for you is, is a total left turn. Mm-hmm. But I have made myself a promise that when I'm speaking to a, a powerful woman in these times, I will ask, um, what do guys need to know? Mm. It seems like all of our ugliness, all of our... All of our ugliness, all of the ways in which patriarchy is destroying us and making us hurt people is, is on show right now. It's on display in, 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 in this dramatic purge that I think is definitely a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know the work is ours. It's not for you to do. Mm-hmm. But if you could share any wisdom for men in these times, what would it be? I there I to me I'm like wow there's not a really an easy answer um to that because there's so much there but the thing that 
is arriving in my spirit right now is to feel your pain. Mm. You know, I think a, a lot of the violence that we see against women is just a manifestation of pain that isn't allowed to be um, on display and shared because of patriarchy. And so, you know, feel it. Wow. I, I don't I don't think I've ever heard it that way before. Mm. That just struck a deep, deep chord inside of me. And it makes perfect sense. And when I think about the men I've been interviewing, that's that's at the heart of what we need to do. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Deeply moved by that. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for following your vision. Thank you for having me. Um, we'll bring you back in as, uh, as the work evolves <laughs> yeah, and we'll yeah. check back in. But we'll let people know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Let us know when the Kickstarter's up. Yeah, I and, will. Uh, uh, just mad respect and incredible amount of love. Thank, Thank you, you so Jean. much. Thank you. Yeah, Ashe. Ashe. Beautiful.